So if you bumped into Jesus this week, you had just a little bit of time, just enough time to bring him one problem to solve, what would it be? Maybe you're on your way to class, you're walking down the hall, you look over and you see Jesus walking next to you, you recognize him because of his signature blue sash, and, uh, and uh, you have just, just enough time to give him one problem to solve. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're on your way uh, to rec time and, uh, and you see him there. Maybe you're in the elevator on the way up to work. Maybe you heard that he's going to be in town. And so you go because you've heard about him. And you go and you have just one thing that you can present to him, one problem to solve. And then let's say, you may not believe this, but let's say you believe uh, what I do about Jesus, that he is God-made flesh, that he came down uh, to bring salvation to all humanity. Let's say you believe that, or maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you just know him by his reputation. You've heard that he can do some pretty amazing things, that he fixes people's problem, he, problems, he heals people, he does miracles, he does unimaginary, unimaginable things. Not unimaginary things, that'd be funny. Uh, unimaginable things. You heard about him and so you wanted to go and you had just enough time to give him one problem to solve. What would you do? Think about that for a minute. What problem would you bring to Jesus? I remember the first time I brought him a really big problem. It was my first really kind of problem as a, as a real full-fledged adult. I was, uh, I was 21 years old. I was heading into my last semester of college. Brandy and I had just uh, gotten engaged. And, uh, and I came back from Christmas break to an expected uh, but still sobering bill from the school. Tuition for my last semester. $5,600, I think, is what it was uh, that was owed. And I had nothing. Uh, and, and when I say I had nothing, I mean I had nothing. I had, I had some, some money that I had set aside for tithe from income uh, from a job I had working at a grocery store. And even that uh, wasn't the full amount that, that I had wanted to set aside um, for tithe. And that was it. I didn't have things I could move around. I didn't have things I could sell. Most of my diet at that point consisted of mildly expired meat and bread uh, from the grocery store I worked at part-time. That's no kidding. Uh, my mode of transportation uh, was a bicycle uh, that my friend had borrowed and run into a ditch so that the fork bent back uh, into, the, into the pedals. And so I still needed the bike. So what I did was I turned the fork around and you know, redid the, uh, the handlebars and rode the bike around as some sort of lopsided lowrider uh, to get to class and to go, uh, to go visit Brand. I mean, it was, I had nothing. And I had this bill, $5,600 due. I'd exhausted all my student loans, and this was a big problem for me. There was no, no means for which to pay this bill. If I didn't pay it, I was out of school, rather embarrassing, uh, especially uh, just mere months away uh, from my wedding. I had questions about how I was going to provide uh, for my bride-to-be. I had all these concerns, all these questions, and I brought them all to Jesus. What would that be for you? If you found Jesus in a crowd this week, what, what would you bring to him? you have it in your head? Think about it. Hold on to it. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. So over the course of this spring, we're going to be we're going to be in a series and a, a season of looking at what it means to be devoted to God. After all, if the church is people devoted to God in community, on mission, 
for God's glory, then we do well to understand what devotion to God looks like. And in this series, leading up to Easter, we're going to be first looking at the things that compete with God for our devotion. It's important to be able to understand and to identify misplaced devotion if we're going to be able to align our devotion correctly. And misplaced devotion can be a tricky thing to identify. And the reason for that is the enemy doesn't tempt us away from devotion to God with things we loathe, with things that we find repulsive. I don't wake up in the morning and think, I could live this day devoted to God. I could express my devotion in a rich prayer life. I could seek to honor him in my relationships with my wife, my children, my coworkers. I could work in such a way that my efforts are aligned with his will so that in so doing, his kingdom is more fully expressed in my world. I could be honest, loving, diligent, could be mindful of his spirit's work in my life so that my steps throughout the day would be taken with him. And I could end the day reflecting on his goodness and provision. I don't wake up in the morning and think of that beautiful picture and think, I could, I could pursue that with my day. Or, or, or I could murder. Right? That's shocking, isn't it? Like that's, no one, no one approaches their day thinking that. Not even people who commit murder approach their day thinking like that. We don't, we're not drawn away from devotion to God by things that we don't like. Instead, the enemy tempts us away. He lures us away by offering us the blessings of God without God. Our enemy shows us shiny, beautiful things, things that we want, and in so doing, draws our devotion from the creator God to things created. And while misplaced devotion can lead to really dark places, it doesn't start that way. It starts with the temptation to gain what appears good apart from the one who gives all good things. In this series, we'll be looking in particular at three things that can rob us of our devotion to God. Money, sex, and power. And none of these things in and of themselves are evil. Each of them, however, has the power to draw our devotion from God. As Kaylee said last week, each of these things can become idols, things that we worship. Each stands as powerful competition for the devotion of our hearts. And for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at money. This week, we're going to look at money in the context of misplaced devotion, money done wrong. And next week, we'll look at money in the context of rightly placed devotion, money done right. And none of us approaches conversations about money from exactly the same place. We all have cultural views of money, informed both by the culture we live in and the family culture we were raised in. We have our present needs and our wants. We have our current income and our financial realities. All of those things inform our individual perspective and how we approach conversations about money. And whether we have a ton or none, whether we have Uh, enough to feel comfortable, maybe we have more than we ever thought we had, maybe we have less than we could have ever imagined. Whatever condition we find ourselves in financially, we're all equally at risk of money taking up the wrong place of our devotion. Because the question of devotion is not primarily answered in how much or how little money we have. Nor is it sufficient to look at how we spend our money. Because how we spend our money is not universally right or wrong. 
In fact, the only universally wrong way to spend money is on sweaters for your cat. <laughs> they already have fur, they don't need sweaters. But other than that, and some other things, I suppose, but just how we spend money doesn't say where our devotion lies. The key to revealing our devotion is to realize that we generally are very consistent in how we use our money. We spend, save, and plan according to our values. What is key is understanding our values so we can unveil our devotion. Our values around money are revealed in how we answer the core questions about money. And those questions are, whose is it? What can it do for me? What can't it do for me? And what does it say about me? And there are right and there are wrong answers to those questions. I may have all the money in the world or be struggling to put food on the table, but none of that matters as much as how I answer those questions. Whose is it? What can it do for me? What can't it do for me? What does it say about me? How I answer those questions opens the window to my heart and shows me where my devotion lies. It's a really interesting interaction that Jesus has um, that, that shows what it looks like when we get the answers wrong to these questions. It's in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to be beginning reading in verse 16. And what's happening here, this is basically at the height of Jesus' popularity. He's been around enough where people uh, have, have, have seen him perform miracles. They've heard of what he's been doing. People are following him by the thousands. He's the hot ticket in town, and everyone wants to be around him. They want to hear what he's saying. They want to see him heal people. They want to see miracles. They want to be a part of what's going on. And in the middle of a rather long uh, sermon that he's giving, speaking to the people around him, speaking to his disciples, he gives this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be married. Mary. Now, I'll tell you from the beginning that the man in this story is the bad guy. Jesus intros the story by, by, guard, by warning people, guard against all kinds of greed. And then he tells the story of the stereotypical greedy man. He's the villain. He's the bad guy. And he's the one who gets it all wrong. And you'll see in a moment how his story ends. He's Scrooge McDuck diving into his pool full of money with no concern for others. He's greedy, caring only about his own needs. He's the guy that we all love to hate. But don't worry, he gets what's coming to him. Look at how God responds to this man. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Well, good, right? If you like movies where the bad guy loses in the end, the bad guy dies, I mean, this is it. Like, this guy is the bad guy, and God says, this very night your life will be demanded from you. But before we judge him too harshly, before we too readily celebrate his demise, we do well to understand him a little better. What if Jesus were telling that story in our time? What if the story read more like this? There was a man who was living the American dream. He'd worked hard in school as a kid, and his work was paying off. 
He had a great job that allowed him to have nice things. He had a house and a good neighborhood and a nice newish car. He was comfortable. He had some good investments, a 401k. Life was pretty good. People looked at him. They saw his life. And if they were honest, they were a little bit jealous. Then one day he gets big news. That promotion he'd been working for had finally come through. He was set. With just a little more work and some wise financial planning, he could retire well. He could quit the rat race and take it easy. He could golf more, go on trips with his family, have time to enjoy his kids. He could enter his twilight years knowing that he would be okay. His future was secure. That guy's a little more difficult to hate, isn't he? After all, that guy is you. He's me. Or if he's not us, at least we wish he were. We wish we could have his life. He can't be that bad, can he? After all, he's succeeding at what we all hope for. He's living in circumstances that we all desire. You can't be all that bad. What's wrong with that guy and what may be wrong with us wasn't his abundance of possessions. It wasn't his hard work. God wasn't calling him a fool for having a lot. His foolishness was found in how he answered the questions about money. In answer to the question, whose is it? Mine. What can it do for me? It can provide for all my needs. It can make me comfortable. It can protect me. It can make me self-sufficient. It can make me happy. What can't it do for me? Well, there's really nothing it can't do for me. I mean, I might say it can't buy me love, but if you really pressed me on the topic, I would say it at least could make it more likely. What does it say about me? It says that I'm a success, that I'm valuable, that I matter. Let's explore why those are the wrong answers just a little bit. Whose is it? Mine. You look in this text, and there's no question in this man's mind whose money it was. The whole passage is full of I. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I'll say to myself. In fact, the only thing in here where he isn't referring to himself, where he says you, is when he's talking to himself. For him, there's no question of ownership. And what he missed was that his ownership wasn't his own. It was a myth. It was the ground who had produced the crop, that had produced the crop in the first place. One season of no rain, and he'd have been telling a different story. And he would have been facing different challenges. He didn't realize that there's no such thing as a self-made man. Any of us born in a different time, in a different place, would have a dramatically different life. There are places in this world right now where if you're born, when you're born, you are guaranteed a life of poverty your entire life. There's no self-made way to get yourself out of that. None of its wealth had its source in himself. His brain to think of the plans was given to him by God. His hands to do the work were made by God. None of those things, though, though, though the product of his work, were, had their source in him, and so he could never truly claim ownership. 
And look at God's response to this man. He says, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. One commentator notes that that phrase, your life will be demanded from you, he's actually using banking terminology. The terminology that one would use when they're calling in a loan. God's making the point to him that you thought you had all these things, and not only will you leave these things, but you don't recognize that even your life is not your own. You just have it on loan for a while. And the loan is being called up. When we think all that we have is ours, when we believe that we own everything and that we're responsible for what we have, when we see it as as solely our ownership, then we miss the opportunity to be grateful, the opportunity to see the provision in our lives. In answer to the question, what can it do for me? While money can absolutely be a means to provide for our material needs, food, clothing, shelter, when we answer the question wrong, we mistakenly think it can protect us. And when we count on our money to protect us, we spend all our time trying to protect our money. We think it can make us comfortable. But when we rely, when we depend on our money to make us comfortable, we pay the price for our physical comfort with a worried mind. We say it can make us self-sufficient. But we don't realize that that's a myth as well. Last week in the, uh, in the video that we closed out service with, if you were uh, with us, Bill, one of the gentlemen in the video, said something that I thought was just incredibly profound. He said, that he's, he said my dependencies allowed me to try to be self-sufficient. And when you think about it, you think, my goodness, how often we believe that and how silly it sounds when you hear it in plain words. And how true that can be of how we spend money. We think, if I just depend enough on money, then I don't have to depend on anything. And it sounds silly when we say it, but we can believe that so easily. Money can't make us self-sufficient. So we say, maybe it can make us happy. And while money may make us happy, it will not keep us happy. We live in a world that tells us all you need is a little little more. A little more of this, a little more of that. All the advertising we see says this will make you comfortable, this will make you secure, this will protect you, this will make you self-sufficient, this will make you happy. And so we try and we try and we try again, and everything around us says all you need is a little more, and then you'll be happy, and then maybe you'll stay happy. One of the really interesting thing that, things that happens when we send teams uh, from Summit to work uh, with our ministry partners in, in Africa is uh, w- when we're there over the course of the week, week and a half uh, that we're there, we'll sit down in the evenings and just talk about what's going on. We'll process through the day. What have we seen? What experiences have we had? And inevitably, one of the main themes that comes through in those times, one of the main things that people have to process through isn't just the poverty that they've seen, although there's some astonishing poverty. But what's most surprising to them isn't that people are poor. It's that people are happy. They get so surprised that in that much poverty, with that little, people can have so much happiness. It's because our world, the world we live in, tells us that's just not possible. Happiness only comes with more. What can't it do for us? 
If we believe that there's nothing money can't do for us, if we see money as the answers to all our needs and wants, then when it, when it falls short, we never end up blaming money. We ultimately don't say money wasn't enough. We say there wasn't enough money. We'll always be devoted to something that ultimately will never deliver on its promise. And in answer to the question, what does it say about me? That goes to the core of our identity. If we let money assign us value, then we've given the the trust of our identity to such a fragile thing. We can so easily get trapped in comparisons because there's always someone who's going to make more, always someone who's going to have more, always someone who's going to do better, cooler things with what they have. If we look to money for our identity, our work becomes less about adding value and more about gaining value. When we believe that money makes us, we make money our God. So here, Jesus is telling the story, this tragic story of a man who had it all and realized all he had was nothing in the end. What's happening in the story isn't, this isn't point seven in Jesus' 20-point sermon. What Jesus is doing is he's actually responding to what's happening around him. There's a person who approaches Jesus and interrupts the sermon with an incredibly important problem. The person, we don't know much about him. We just know he's him. We'll call him Hank, maybe, for our conversation. Hank comes up, and Jesus is, is gathered there, thousands of people around. He's in the mid, you know, mid-sentence, almost. And Hank comes up and says, Teacher, tell my brother, Esteban, to divide the inheritance with me. Now, there's two reasons someone would make an interruption like that. That would make sense of such a blunt, abrupt interruption. One is he thinks the problem is big enough. And two, he plans to go away when the problem's solved. He's not trying to change what Jesus is doing. He just wants to get in there, get his problem solved, and get out. A few days ago, I think last week uh, sometime, we were having kind of a slow, quiet morning as a family. I think it was my day off. And, uh, and Brandy and I hadn't even uh, made it out of bed yet. We're sitting in bed. Magi- magically, coffee had appeared in our hands, uh, and children had gathered around, and we're just sitting there, just really enjoying a wonderful time. I mean, we're having a great conversation. It was one of those moments where you just appreciate, appreciate what's going on, appreciate the blessing of family and life and all of that. And then my youngest, Ashley, comes in the room. And he comes in the room with a problem for me to solve. He announces his problem, and me, being a good, loving father, quickly hop out of bed to go help him solve his problem. And as I'm helping him with his problem, he says, Dad, when you're done with this, you can get back in bed. And I thought to myself, how sweet. This little seven-year-old, he knows what's going on here. He knows what a precious time this is. Maybe he's going to hop up in bed, too, and he didn't want to miss the opportunity to be a part of this precious moment. And for just a moment, I was caught by that. And then I realized, this is Ashley. I know him. He might be that considerate for Brandy, but not for me. And so I asked him, Ashley, do you want me to get back in bed so that you can keep watching TV? And he's very honest, so he said yes. 
What he wanted was for me to solve his problem, and then he wanted me to get out of his way so he could continue watching Wild Kratts. And I've been bothering him about watching too much TV, and he didn't have time for that. That's what's happening in this story here. This man, Hank, comes up to Jesus and says, I've got this problem, and you need to solve it. And Jesus replies, really kind of surprisingly, man, Hank, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? And then he goes on to warn against greed, and he goes on to tell this tragic tale of the rich man. And Jesus' response, though stern, was not unkind. The man in the crowd approached Jesus with his most pressing problem, a money problem. And what Jesus was doing was playing it forward for him. Jesus gives him the gift of perspective. Hank was stuck in the problem of the moment. He thought, like all of us are susceptible to do, that if this problem was solved, all would be well. The size of his problem was eclipsing the horizon. And Jesus showed him the kindness of perspective. He helps the man see his problem in light of the big picture. Jesus plays the story forward so that this man, standing in the shadow of what seems like a life-altering challenge, has an opportunity to peek at the horizon and see what really matters. The man approached Jesus to fix his problem. And Jesus could have. He can fix any of our problems. But where Hank went wrong, and where I so often go wrong, is that he saw Jesus as the one who could solve his problems and missed that Jesus was the solution. Jesus concludes this story, this sad tale of the rich man who got it all wrong, with these words. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. The man wanted Jesus to fix his problems so that he could have the riches he deserved. And Jesus was telling him he was asking for far too little. What Jesus wanted for him was richness towards God. He wanted him to see that he was there to help people be rich towards God. He knew that that man's problems, even if they were solved, would be no substitute for what he was really offering. What he was offering was himself. For a man who wanted to own money, to say that's mine, he said he offered himself as the one who owns heaven and earth. For a man who saw money as a thing that would provide for all his needs, Jesus was offering himself as the only one who can meet all our needs, who can protect us, who can be our ultimate sufficiency, the only one who can bring us true happiness. For a man who thought there's no problem money couldn't solve, Jesus offers himself as the one who loves us more than we can imagine and whose love was bought with the price of his own sacrifice. For a man who needed to have the inheritance so that he could have the identity. Jesus offered himself who says, we matter, no matter what. The one who says that we're more valuable than all the treasure in the world. The man wanted far too little. That man, like me at times, wanted what is at best a blessing to be his salvation. And what Jesus wanted from him and for him was a heart rich towards God. Jesus wanted him, wants for us as well, 
a heart devoted to God. That story I told you about, that problem that I brought to Jesus. Here's where that took me. I was there in my cruddy little apartment, the bill on the table, and all my money piled up, all $372 of it, all held in reserve as tithe for God. I'd actually gone through uh, the cushions of the couch and and all around the apartment to get everything because I knew that even even in that, I was was facing a deficit in terms of what I'd set aside, what what I'd intended, what a tithe was for God. And so I put it all on the table. And God made it very clear to me in those moments. Those were really tough moments. He made it very clear to me that this wasn't a money problem, that this was a devotion problem. I was going to make a decision in that moment. Was I going to trust what little money I had to try to solve my problems? Or was I going to trust that God was enough? Because I'll tell you what, he wasn't making any promises to me there. There was no like, you know, oh, if you give this up, I'll certainly provide. It was just trust me. Be devoted to me first. Those were hard moments. I I was sweating. I was like shaking. And I decided to trust I decided to not compromise my devotion to God. So I went to Brandy because I didn't have a bank account, and I was like, here's all my money. Can you put it in a bank so we can write a check? And we wrote a check out that would cover a year and a half of sponsorship for a child through Compassion International. And we, we hoped at that point that you know, when, when that time was up that we'd be able to continue uh, the sponsorship. So I had the check. I had the sponsorship stuff filled out. And I didn't have any money for a stamp. Because I'd gone through all the cushions, I've turned the apartment upside down, and I didn't have the whatever it was, 27 cents for a stamp. So I was like, all right, God, you need to provide. So I go and I scrounge once again, dig just a little deeper in the couch, and I found 27 cents. I walked up to the campus post office, laid my 27 cents down, put a stamp on the envelope, and dropped the envelope in the box. There was a scary but joyful sobriety in that moment. I decided to not compromise my devotion to God. I decided to trust him rather than what I could provide. And then God did something really amazing. He hasn't done this much uh, since in my life, but I think he knew how hard that battle had been for me. And I think he wanted to show me he was going to take care of me then and he would take care of me always. I'm walking out of the post office, and I stop at my little post office box and open it up, and inside there's a letter. And the letter is from the school. It's, a, it's a, uh, a notification of a scholarship award, something that I did not know I was eligible for, something I had not applied for. It was in the amount of $5,600, one semester's tuition. And you know what the crazy thing is? I got the award because I was the poorest person at Taylor. And I was not too proud uh, to appreciate that one single bit. They had this big awards bank when I went there and sat with the benefactors of the scholarship fund. I got to eat food that wasn't expired. It was an amazing thing. I'll tell you what, I've had money problems since then. I haven't handled my financial world correctly all the time, but I have never since then doubted whether or not God is worth my first allegiance, whether or not he's worth all my devotion. 
Now, the good news in all of this is that it's not all bad news when it comes to money. Not all the answers are wrong. Remember, there's right answers to those questions. Whose is it? What can it do for me? What can't it do for me? What does it say about me? We've looked at the wrong answers, but there are right answers as well. So come back next week. We're going to talk about the right answers. What happens when we get it right? In the meantime, take this week and consider what your answers are to those questions. Consider where you may be getting it wrong. Ask people close to you, people who know you. Ask them, how do they think you would answer those questions? Look at your spending habits. Pull out your bank statement for the last two months. Look there and see, what does how you spend your money say about your values, say about your devotion? Most importantly, ask God. Ask him to show you your heart. Ask him to reveal where you depend on money, where you depend on him, where there might be compromise. Because ultimately, we'll never, even if we know the right answers, we'll never get the answers right if we don't see God as bigger than all of our problems. So go to him and ask him to show you yourself this week. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you. Grateful for being bigger than all of our challenges. Grateful that you don't send us away empty when we come to you with our problems. And even when we don't like the answers, your answers are always good because you are good. And in all of the challenges that we face in life, in all the things that would compete for our devotion, in all of the things that would have us depend on them, you are stronger, you're bigger, and you're better. Help us believe that this week. Help us trust you in the big things and the small things. And give us the gift of perspective. Give us the big picture, a look at the horizon, the story that you're telling in this world and in our lives. And we pray this all in your holy and precious name. Amen.